The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. This morning, as we continue through our journey in the book of Genesis, we return to the story of Noah. Last Sunday, we looked at the seven days leading up to the flood. And as we finished, Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, along with all the animals, have entered the ark. And we're told, and after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. Once again, and I noticed this a couple of weeks ago, or noted this a couple of weeks ago, once again, as you get to this point, and the author kind of steps back from this picture that he's been painting, focuses in on a finer detail. In Genesis 6, we covered 120 years. And then in the, uh, in, in the first 10 verses of chapter 7 last week, we covered seven days. And this morning, the first six verses of our reading cover just one day. But what a day. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day, of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals were going in male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. After such a long time of leading to this moment, in just one day, Noah and his family and all of the animals come and enter the ark. And on that very same day, the springs of the deep burst forth and the heavens open and it begins to rain. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all of the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that has breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. 
Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. I spoke last week of trying to comprehend the emotions of Noah and his family as they entered into the ark, leaving behind this beautiful earth that they had enjoyed, and family and friends and neighbours, many of whom were no doubt still mocking them. Although I think as the animals suddenly began to appear out of nowhere, masses of animals just suddenly appearing and turning up at the ark, surely those watching on began to wonder and think maybe something unusual was happening. As I read this passage, I wondered at God's timing. On that very day, We already know from Genesis 1 how much God can get done in a day. And we also know, and those who are old enough, I was thinking of the song, What a Difference a Day Makes, 24 Little Hours. That shows my age. How much can change in a day for better or worse? Jesus captures this very clearly in Matthew 24, and he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at this coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. At least some of them should have known. Noah was a, a preacher of righteousness. He must have preached to so many, I would imagine, over the years that he had known. But it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to listen and to know. And for those who are in the ark, after decades and decades of waiting, working, planning, preparation, suddenly that moment arrives. And in just one day, Noah and his wife and the animals, his sons and their wives, and the flood all arrive on one day. Whenever we have cause to wonder why God doesn't hurry up, you ever had that cause? God, why don't you hurry up? We need only to remember that he knows all things, and therefore he knows the right time. Usually not my time, but when I look back, it's the right time. And we also know that he has the power in whatever time he has available to do all things. And I'm also given cause to praise and reflect, to pause and reflect on God's decisiveness because we're told that when everything was in the ark and all the people and all the animals, then the Lord shut him in. Just those few words in that decisive moment. It speaks of God's provision through partnership. He doesn't have to use us, but God decides and chooses to use us. You remember back, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
God could have just simply said, let there be an ark. And there would have been an ark. But he required Noah and his family to take the time to build the ark. He could almost feel to Noah and his family that they'd had to do all of the work to get ready for this moment. And certainly Noah's obedience played a critical role in this moment, in their salvation. But without warning from God, and without God's instructions, they would not have known what was needed, they would not have known what was coming. And if God had not shut the door, everything else would have been in vain. There is this incredible partnership that God brings. So I'm going to modify a little quote from St. Augustine. And I want to say that we should work as if everything depends on us, but rest knowing that reality is everything depends on God. God wants that partnership with us. There are things he wants us to do, but at the end of the day, he could do it all without us. But he includes us in the process. There are times when we might feel like everything that God is asking of us places the weight on our shoulders. Been there, done that. But make no mistake, he is doing so much more in the background than we could possibly imagine. But he does invite us into partnership. He does require a contribution from us. There's so many things that only God can do, but he does require our obedience. After all, Hebrews tells us that he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Or as one translation says, he is the author and finisher of our faith. He begins it and he finishes it. There is nothing without him. but he does require something from us between the beginning and the end. As I read and reflected on this passage, something else really caught my attention. Sometimes we might repeat something for emphasis. Sometimes we might say something in a different way a couple of, in a, in a, to, to gain clarity. Sometimes we might go further and repeat ourselves three times like I've talked about in the past. If you want to know how someone knows, I might go, hey Stephen, how are you? And he goes, yeah, I'm good. Stephen, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Stephen, how are you really? If you want to know how someone is, you've got to ask him three times. We saw this with Jesus and Peter on the beach. And three times Jesus said to Peter, do you really love me? But here in the story, I find that twice isn't enough for the author here. Neither are three times. I find that here in Genesis 7, the author goes further. He, asks, he makes a statement four times. Any one of the statements is complete in itself, but he repeats himself four times in four different ways because I think he needs us to understand. Every living thing, every living thing that moved on the land, perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that has breath of life in its nostrils died. Didn't he already say that? 
Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, in case you missed it the first two times. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth, in case you didn't hear it the first three times. Within the ark and the, the door shut tight by the hand of God, Noah and his family are perfectly safe. But outside the ark, after 40 days of rain from above and after 40 days of the springs bursting forth from below the earth, the destruction is complete. The destruction is absolute. Ex except for Noah and those with him in the ark. Immediately my mind goes through a number of times in the Bible where we find this incomplete destruction. I think it was the destruction of Jericho where Achan keeps some of the things that have been meant to have been dedicated to God. The, the obedience is almost but not quite. I think of the conquest of the promised land which was never quite complete. And I think of the surrender of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And God start, Jesus starts ticking a few things off. And his obedience was not quite complete. And every time that our obedience isn't quite complete, there's a price to be paid later because the price wasn't paid now. And I'm sure there are many more examples both in scripture and in your life and in mine when our obedience comes up just short. There are so many things that we want to hold on to. I think of what Noah and his family may have wanted to take into the ark with them. But God had said, your wife Noah, your three sons, their wives, and all of the animals and that's it. Oh, food for the animals, but that's it. Obedience was absolute. God calls for absolute obedience. He doesn't punish us when our obedience is an absolute because our salvation depends on him, but we lose something, we miss something when our obedience is not absolute. And then with one sentence, the author leaves us with a sense of what for me is almost like absolute silence. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. 40 days, it's been raining, and then another 110 days of nothing. So much had happened on that one day, and then 40 days of destruction, and then nothing for 110 days. There's still stuff happening in the ark, but right round the world. Water covers the entire earth and all that's visible as far as the eye can see is this one ark floating. For me it was so reminiscent of Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The rain has stopped, the springs have closed and for another 110 days nothing, just Noah and his families and his, the animals in the ark. 
Can you remember back to the 11th of October? It's not long ago, it's called 40 days ago. So on the 11th of October it started raining, like it did a few times yesterday. But it didn't stop until this morning. And then nothing until the 10th of March next year. So much in such a short time and then nothing. I was talking with Michael last Monday and I was wondering about the possible moments of doubt that Noah might have had in that 110 days. And as Michael correctly pointed out, they had seen God do so much. They had seen God's faithfulness. They'd, they'd hung in there. Noah was a righteous man even before God called him. And God had given them the instructions for the ark and they built the ark and, and the animals had come like they promised and the, and, and the family had entered in like they had been promised and they were now floating like they had been promised. And the destruction had come like God had foretold. And he would have had very little doubt. But if we take a little sneak peek to the beginning of next week's reading, it says, but God remembered Noah. I think the author is just paying a little bit of attention to the fact that we are human. There are those moments, no matter where we've been, whatever journey we've been on, no matter how much we've seen God move, particularly in those seasons when it seems now God has stopped moving. 120 years may have been a long time, but there was something happening. 40 days may have seemed a long time, but there was something happening. But now 110 days of waiting. You've seen God act in the past. You've heard the stories of God's mighty power and his faithfulness. And yet you still get to those seasons where you're going, God, have you forgotten me? God, you used to, there was so much going on in my life. There was so much you were doing, and it stopped. God, have you forgotten me? But God remembered Noah and the animals and the livestock. You know, faith doesn't mean that you don't have moments of doubt. Faith means you hold on to the promises in spite of the doubts. Faith is not about how we feel. Faith is not about believing, I know I can do this. Faith is not self-confidence. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about faith over the years and it, it kind of feels like self-confidence. If I just believe, if I just have enough faith. And Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed. Faith is not self-confidence. Faith is god confidence. Faith is trusting that God will do what God has said in spite of what I think and I feel right now. I love it. Twice this morning, Stephen and Mike have both brought up Bible verses that I was brought into my message. God's saying something. 
Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. In Romans 10, 17, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Faith rests not on what I think or what I feel, but on what God has said and on who God is. And in Numbers 23, 19, we're told that God is not a human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Really good questions. And so Hebrews 11 continues. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was made out of what was not visible. And then we saw, by, by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And by faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, as they say, it's probable that they had never seen rain. They didn't know there was all this water below the earth. They had never seen destruction like it. But when Noah was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. I wrestle a little bit with that bit about by faith he condemned the world. But as I was doing some background reading, I made the comment that when you live by faith, you're not sitting there going, yeah, you're condemned. But the people around you will feel condemned. The people will see your righteousness and they will understand how far they fall short of the glory of God. That's why the world will hate us. Because they will see that we live by a different standard. As we follow that chapter through, we find that Abel was the first man to enter heaven. The first person to get to heaven was a murder victim. Enoch was the first man to bypass death. And Noah, if you read the scriptures, was the first man to be, to be declared righteous. Not that he was the first righteous man, but he was the first one to be declared righteous. We're told in Genesis 6 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And then we're told, and Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And then we're told, and Noah did all that God commanded him. This is not faith plus obedience, but simply that true faith always produces obedience. Here at the chapel we say that our mission is to inspire one another to follow Jesus. Jesus puts it this way. He says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. You make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them 
to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Remembering, of course, these words, that God waited patiently in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. In it only a few people ate and all were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Baptism is symbolised by Noah's journey of salvation in the ark. To enter into the ark, to pass through judgment, Noah had to be willing to let go of everything. To leave everything behind that God said to leave behind. God provides the way. We simply need to walk in faith-filled obedience. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.